Last week we, we talked about the mind and consciousness. We talked about how part of the mind that I call the narrating mind uh, contributes to so much to our uh, idea of the ego self as, as being uh, a real thing that we are rather than just a, what it really is, which is a convenient construct of the mind to base the story of uh, ourselves on. And uh, put that in the larger context, when we're discussing mind and, and consciousness, uh, that grew out of a discussion of the five aggregates. And the five aggregates, see this is where I could be using this uh, projector, but I didn't make mm-hmm. this Sensations, feelings, perceptions, and other kinds of mental formations, and then consciousness. And we were conscious of five different categories of sensations. We're conscious of feelings. We're, uh, when we are conscious of things, we're conscious of the perceptions that are created by our minds based on sensations. And then uh, the other kinds of mental formations that we're conscious of are ideas, thoughts, emotions, memories, imaginations, and so forth. And um, I, I related this five aggregates structure to a uh, description that arose somewhat later, where recognizing that that this is mostly a description of conscious experience, yet everything that we're conscious of is coming out of the unconscious. This was called the alaya, or the storehouse consciousness. And I'll just point out to you, it might be helpful, any of you that do other reading might find it confusing, that up until that time, uh, just as in the West, there hadn't been a distinction between mind and consciousness the way there is now. Now we see mind as having two parts, a conscious part and an unconscious part. But until the existence of the unconscious was recognized by the Yogacara Buddhists, and much more recently by people uh, uh, like, not exclusively, but people connected with and, and engaged in the same things as Carl Jung and, and uh, uh, Sigmund Freud. And so we in the West also came to realize that there was a conscious and an unconscious mind, which is really kind of a new idea. But prior to that distinction being made, mind and consciousness were seen as being the same. So this is really confusing now that we recognize that mind has two parts and consciousness is only one of those two. So when you when you read uh, Buddhist uh, doctrine, what you'll come across is talking about consciousness is as though that's all there is. And then later on we have the Yogacharans who are talking about the Alaya consciousness, this eighth kind of consciousness, which isn't a consciousness at all. It's the unconscious, right? But they only have one word in those days. So when they discerned that indeed there was an eighth aspect to mind other than consciousness of seeing, hearing, feeling, uh, seeing, hearing, feeling, touching, smelling, tasting, uh, consciousness of mental objects, and then the consciousness of the, the self and the story of the self that the mind tells. Those were seven aspects of the mind. The eighth aspect of the mind, which got called by the same label, uh, vijnana or vijnana, uh, it was it was a consciousness. It was an unconsciousness, <laughs> which actually turns out to be the biggest part of the mind. And then the other thing that we uh, talked about was the fact that that once you realize that there is an unconscious mind, then you immediately realize that all of the other seven kinds of consciousness that we experience are the result of completely different unconscious mental processes. So we can think of the unconscious being made up of these different 
separate minds. There's a separate visual mind and an auditory mind and a mind that's responsible for memories and a mind that's responsible for certain kinds of thinking, like, for example, mathematical or logical thinking. And another completely different part, different unconscious mind that's responsible for more sorts of creative and artistic uh, and relational kind of thinking and so forth. So there's many different mental processes in the unconscious. And of course, in your meditation and our previous discussions, we've, we've recognized this both implicitly and explicitly. There are many parts to our mind. And one of the things that is really significant that we talked about is that the only way these different parts of our mind have to communicate with each other is by making something conscious. And that's what consciousness is. Consciousness is this wonderful place, or sort of like a screen on which things can be projected. It's a place that whenever one of these unconscious mental processes projects something into consciousness, all the other minds can know it. They can. And so this is how the different mental processes that make us up communicate with each other, is by projecting things into consciousness. And every one of those uh, invisible unconscious sub-minds is capable of projecting things into consciousness. And anything that is projected into consciousness is, is available to all of them. Not that all of them are necessarily paying attention, right? but all of those that are. And we've talked in the past of the metaphor of the boardroom or the committee. And sometimes we don't make good decisions when not everybody is involved, not all the different parts of us are, are that should be are participating in the decision-making process which is why it's often better to slow down and take our time. Because a chance for uh, different parts of your unconscious mind to notice that something relevant that they have something to contribute to is, is uh, uh, being engaged in as some kind of decision-making process. And then they can provide their input and make much better decisions as a result. It also, we can see why there is so much evidence of internal conflict. And we see some of that manifests as simply as you sit down to meditate, you sit down to meditate, meaning that there's some subset of the, sub of the minds that make you up that for probably each one for slightly different reasons has decided that meditation's a good idea. And so that's enough to bring you to sit down and close your eyes and start to meditate. But at that point, there's other parts of yourself, other parts of your mind, that think that the best thing for all of us to do would be something quite different, and that keeps throwing up different suggestions. We should daydream about this, we should think about that, we should say to heck with this and go to the movie, or, or whatever. And so we directly experience this, the, the, the nature of the mind, because what we, what we are conscious of is what these different minds are projecting, and so we sit down and meditate, put our attention on the breath, and all this other stuff keeps showing up in consciousness. I'm just demonstrating what's happening. So that's kind of the picture that we've been <coughs> discussing, portraying the model of the mind. We call it the mind system model. Mind as a system. It's a complex system made of many components, rather than as a single thing. Which, at this point, is there anybody who still thinks the mind is a thing, a single thing. Great. <laughs> right. So before we go any further, I'm sure this must have stimulated some questions and thoughts uh, and reflected on it. So please share some of that. Yeah. So when we were talking about um, the aggregate of consciousness, uh, you know, we were talking about it as always experienced as consciousness of. Yes. Right? Um, <clears throat> yet, you've also said and others say that, uh, you know, the experience of nirvana is the experience of consciousness without content, without an object. Exactly, yes. So where does that fit in? Okay, that's a very good question. You see, 
we are conscious. Now that we've got this larger picture, we can say what consciousness is. You know, our, who who is it that's conscious? It's not a self that's conscious. It's this collective of mental processes. As a matter of fact, in any given moment, it's only how however much of that collective is bothering to see what's being projected on the screen of consciousness. Right? Okay. So who who is consciousness? Is the who is conscious? Are the various minds that uh, make us up? And consciousness itself is this process of information sharing. Now. To use this analogy, we can imagine a group of people looking at a screen in which information is continuously being projected. And we can also imagine the screen going blank. Now, in the case of the mind, the source of the information is the audience, right? And so the only way the screen will go blank is if all of the minds cease their fabricating and projecting activities simultaneously. Okay? Now, this does actually happen in situations other than uh, nirvana. It happens in, in deep anesthesia, if you are unconscious due to a serious head injury, and uh, in deep sleep. Those are just some obvious examples where uh, Consciousness isn't happening. You know. uh, now, remember there's two aspects to this. There's information being projected into consciousness, and then these various minds can either pay attention to what's being projected or not. When you're in a state of deep sleep, or when mental activity is disrupted through an injury or through anesthesia, although let me just qualify that because... No one knows for sure exactly what happens in anesthesia. <laughs> uh, we might be on safer grounds sticking to what happens with a blow on the head. or, uh, uh, But I don't think so, actually. Alcoholic stupor and all kinds of other things. Um, when you're in deep sleep, it's true. Nothing's being projected onto the screen of consciousness. Or if it is, if occasionally uh, some mind is projecting something into consciousness, at least we can safely say nobody's paying attention. None of the rest of the minds are paying attention. Now, the difference of what happens in the experience of nirvana is, and this is, I'll use the same words that the Buddha used in describing it. Nirvana is when the mind ceases all of its fabricating idea, activities. It stops fabricating objects to project into consciousness. It stops fabricating perceptions, feelings, etc., all of these different things. And the other thing is that in Nirvana, everyone's paying attention. So the difference is that this is an opportunity for the mind collectively to understand what's really been going on, right? That's what makes that's what gives nirvana its power. So it's consciousness without an object. It's everybody's awake and alert and looking at the screen and seeing at the same time that, wow, there's nothing on it. <laughs> if I don't put something on it, there's nothing there. And everything that's ever been there has just been something I put there. Right? And so, so that's the nature of the realization. In, to, to, to bring about the experience of nirvana, basically all of these minds have to get wiser and wiser in the sense that uh, insight Insight becomes widespread amongst all of the different sub-minds that make you up. And at the same time, a powerful equanimity develops amongst all of those minds. And that ripens when a particular combination of events comes together so that all at the same time, all these different minds that have been taking turns projecting things into consciousness 
basically all at the same time, they simultaneously decide, I don't want to do this anymore. And then it's, wow, look what happens. And this is the experience of Nirvana. Okay. Now, this same situation can be approached through meditation. Um, and it's done through the jhanas, which is what's called the formless jhanas. And what you're doing, especially with the formless jhanas, is you're, you're, you're basically eliminate, progressively eliminating certain kinds of content from consciousness. So in the first, the formless jhanas, which is the, uh, it's called the base of infinite space. But essentially what it is, it's the place where all sense of spatial locality ceases for the simple reason that the different parts of your mind that have been projecting that kind of information, by the time you get to, to this point, a lot of different parts of your mind have quieted down and stopped projecting things into consciousness. But in, in the form jhanas that immediately precede this, there's still a very distinct sense of, of you know, I, I'm not thinking about anything, I'm not paying attention to anything, I'm just this mind, and I know my mental state, and, uh, but uh, um, there's still the sense there, there is space, and I'm here. And so really the base of uh, infinite space is when the mind quits doing that. You persuade the mind to just let go of that, and there become a, a space as a distinction and spatial locality disappears. Now what follows very easy from that, once you enter that mental space, of course you are conscious of this unfinite space, non-finite space. So that's called the base of, the, the next jhana is called the base of infinite consciousness. Because you experience Consciousness as no longer bounded nor directed, but basically, basically just all there is, infinite consciousness. The next base after that, is which you can access from this one, is if we, if we go to our normal reference of infinite space, infinite space is mostly empty, right? And, and the emptiest kind of emptiness is space without any things in it, right? That's the most infinite space. As a matter of fact, just to descend to the realm of logic, space only exists when you have reference. And as soon as you have two objects in space, then you no longer have infinite space, you've got finite space. I mean, you can ignore this object and it will be infinite in that direction. But two objects define a finite space. So you've managed to get beyond that. Infinite consciousness. And you see that infinite consciousness and absence have a, have a direct relationship. Consciousness is consciousness of something. And the something defines and limits uh, consciousness the same way it does space. So the next base is the base of nothingness. Now here, what is being projected into consciousness is basically the perception of nothingness. Okay, so it's not really an experience of nothingness in the sense of no projections. It's the experience of a projection into consciousness of a perception of nothingness. To it, uh, a simple comparison, I think it helps understand that, is you put your wallet in the drawer, and then you go later and you open the drawer, and it's not there. You have a, an experience of absence, your experience of nothingness. And it's a very real, concrete thing. It's a projection of the mind. I mean, it's true, there, there's, there's, a, there's an absence of the wallet, but there's a mental experience of And that's really what the base of nothingness is. It's still a projection of the mind. Now, when you go into deep sleep, what's happening is a cessation of perception. Uh, so that's a kind of unconsciousness. Right? 
Um, the next jhana after this is called the base of neither perception nor non-perception, which basically means you're not you're not conscious of a mental construct being projected into consciousness, but you're also not unconscious the way you are in sleep. So that's the base of neither, neither perception nor non-perception. But it still involves a certain degree of mental constructs and mental activities. And the mind is not necessarily totally equanimous yet. So there is a stage beyond this, and it's called the cessation of feeling and perception. It's not non-perception, it's cessation of perception. It's the cessation of feeling and perception, and that, that in fact, is nirvana. So, that's the relationship between nirvana and consciousness and objects of consciousness. So, Nirvana is described as a pure consciousness experience. It's the, it is the conscious experience of consciousness without an object, which means it's the conscious experience of consciousness in a way that has never been experienced before by the mind. The mind naturally wants to repeat that experience because it is so rich with the ability to understand and interpret and make sense well, let's put it this way, more immediately, it's rich with the need to understand and make sense. Because this has split open our ordinary way of perceiving reality right, right at the root. So there's a, a profound need to, for the mind to uh, find some way to wrap itself around this. <laughs> and, and so there, there's this re return to it. And each return to it deepens the understanding in the mind. So the repeated experience of nirvana, uh, once you have experienced nirvana for the first time, the repeated experience is what leads you progressively through uh, what are called the stages of awakening, the stages of enlightenment. Next question. <laughs> yes. I need, I need about a million more lifetimes to understand that. But, but what I wanted to ask you, how does unified mind relates to what you just talked about? Uh, yes, well, that, that's, that, that's a very good question. As essentially, that is the goal of meditation, is to unify the mind. Okay? We see now that our mind is this collective that has a lot of internal conflict. All the different parts of your mind have... They have the same ultimate goal. They, 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 their ultimate purpose is the uh, well-being and happiness of the whole. But just as a group of people, you know, wants, we want everybody to be happy, but I don't like what you're doing, and I'm going to beat you up until you stop doing it, kind of approach. And the mind is exactly the same way. Every part of your mind has a different function, it has different goals related to its function. Every part of your mind by itself is limited. You know, you just, it has this job and this is its job. And it tends to interpret everything in terms of its job. So the result is every different part of your mind, it's try, they're all trying to go the same way. But each has its own goals, it has its own agenda, it has its own function which defines its purpose, it has its own limitations. It has taken in and assimilated certain material or certain information and not taken in and not assimilated other information. So all these different parts of your mind are very different and stand in contrast to each other in that way. And this is what we ordinarily experience in our lives, is the fruits of this uh, disunification of mind. In the process of meditation, what we're trying to do is to unify the mind. And, 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 and admittedly, it's kind of a contrived and artificial process. And in the beginning, the unification that it brings about is also contrived and fairly limited. But in the long run, 
that unification becomes much more genuine and widespread, and and that is that makes a huge difference. Another thing that's really important about unification of mind, in terms of happiness and unhappiness, when all of the different parts of your mind are functioning in perfect harmony, when all inner conflict has disappeared, like this is kind of the ultimate goal, complete, total, perfect harmony of the mind, it, the state of the mind is totally joyous. And the feeling arising is pure happiness. This is described usually in the English word bliss to try to convey. Because bliss is a word that in English means a really, really rich kind of happiness. You know, different from ordinary kinds of happiness. And so, so in English, bliss is a good word for us to use for this. So the more unified your mind is, even if it's not as completely unified as I just described, the more unified it is, the closer you are to bliss, the happier you are, and the more joyful the mental state is. So a unified, a, a state of unification is a, a progressively increasing state of unification corresponds directly to a progressively increasing state of joy. So as we unify the mind, we bring the mind into a joyful state. Also, it works the other way around. How do you unify a mind? It's like herding cats. <laughs> right? Herding cats is really hard to do, because every cat has a different idea of which way he wants to go and what he wants to do. And not only that, if you watch cats very much, especially herds of cats, <laughs> doesn't take much more than two cats to have a herd. <laughs> Part of what makes one cat want to go this way instead of that way is because the other cat's going that way. <laughs> so unifying your mind is a lot like hurting cats. But you can hurt cats. We all know how to do that. You open a can of tuna fish. <laughs> now all the cats want to go the same direction. You heard the same way you heard cats, that's the same way that you help the mind come into a state of unification. If, if you do something and it makes you happy, and you remain conscious of the happiness, if it causes pleasure and you remain conscious of the pleasure, if it's rewarding, satisfying, enriching, fulfilling, uh, if, any of these positive things. If you project that into consciousness, basically sending a memo out to all the minds, hey, this thing that we're doing right now, look what it's doing. It's, it's, it's making us happy. <laughs> then, just like tuna fish and cats, this makes all the different parts of your mind start to say, hey, okay, maybe this isn't such a bad idea. Maybe this is the direction that we should be going. So, you... You take the fact that a unified mind is a joyful and happy mind, and you can flip that around the other way and say, the more joy and happiness that I can induce, then the more the mind is going to unify around whatever it is I do that uh, is producing that joy and happiness. And you realize what you're doing is you're making use of the mind is constructed to do that anyway. You know, uh, that's that's how it is that we do certain kinds of things more and more. Things that give us a lot of pleasure, satisfaction, joy, we do more of them. We have an urge to do more of them. Some part of our mind wants to do something else. Those other parts say, "Hey, wait a minute! We did this before, and that was really great. Let's let's do that again." So you're making use of a natural proclivity, a natural tendency for how your mind works, to not to direct you so much to specific kinds of activities. You sort of shifted the emphasis a little bit so that it's, it, hey guys, it's not that we're doing this that makes it feel so good. It's that we're 
all unified about doing this that makes this feel so good. Mm. So now, now you're training the mind to tend towards unification rather than the opposite. So, but how does it relate to the state of nirvana when you have achieved maybe the perfect harmonizing mind? How does it relate to the state described before? No well, <clears throat> basically, the reason that you can't, the reason that we don't all have the insights we need that lead to nirvana, and the reason that we don't all experience the equanimity that we need that leads to nirvana, is all this inner conflict that's going on in the mind, all this activity and yeah, conflict. Let's call it conflict. We need to unify the mind in order to have a mind that's capable of profound insight and is capable of achieving uh, a very powerful equanimity. Um, let me just explain. Yeah, you see how a unified mind is capable of seeing reality and understanding it more clearly. Okay. Let's talk about the equanimity part. So that's the insight part, the equanimity part. Now, when the mind is unified and becomes joyful and happy on its own, that leads to a certain kind of equanimity towards, towards things. The more the mind collectively experiences that the source of its happiness comes from within and not from without, the less reactive it is to things that would are otherwise causes of pleasure and pain, good and bad. So, samatha, unification of the mind, uh, this state that we're moving towards in meditation, not only it creates a mind that's capable of insight, it creates a mind that has a certain, that is developing more and more equanimity. It's less and less reactive, less and less wanting to grasp onto and cling and got to get this and got to get rid of that. And it has much more requirements. This can come, so what? It's all right. That can go, that's okay too. That kind of equanimity. So that's the equanimity of samatha that's the result of the unification of the mind. But as the mind becomes more and more unified, it becomes more and more capable of insight. As it becomes more and more capable of insight, the insights that it has are that gee, things aren't the way I always thought they were. And what's been making me miserable is thinking things were one way when they really aren't. They're a different way. Right? So insight produces its own kind of equanimity. The reason we grasp after things is because of the mistaken notion that we were a separate self and to be happy we had to get those things. Or the reason that we were aversion and strove against certain things is we were a separate self and those things hurt me and I got to protect myself and get rid of them and destroy them. And so as the mind sees that, wow, it's really the grasping and, and the aversion that's been making me suffer all along. It's not the things that I'm grasping after uh, or that I'm trying to get away from. It's what I'm doing. That produces a whole new different level of equanimity. When you, have, when you have insight and when you have both the equanimity of samatha and the equanimity of the insight itself, you have a powerful enough equanimity that the mind can stop its fabrications and it can experience nirvana. Okay? Let me just point out, when you, when you lay it all out and dissect it, as I've been doing for you, I think it's a very valuable and important thing that I do that. But... When I lay it all out in detail so you can see how it all works, it may make it seem more complex, more difficult to grasp intellectually, and more difficult to achieve than it really is. Right? So, I was an anatomist once. If the anatomy of a human being, when it's all laid out, all of the different branches of all of the different arteries and all of the different veins and all the different branches of the nerves and all of the different tissues, all the different organs, all of the different organ systems. 
It's like, oh my God, I, believe me, I saw this with lots of students. <laughs> Although, I, I saw all the students also kind of a place where they go, I really can understand all of that. I can really, it all fit together, it makes sense to me. And it's, it's, it's the same way with this. When I dissect your mind and when I dissect the process of moving from ordinary mind to awakened mind, it's every bit as complex as if I laid out every detail of the structure of your body from single cells you know, right on up. But um, you, you don't need to do all of that to be able to work with bodies, right? Okay, so it's a help. It's a help in sort of particular ways, but don't be intimidated by it. It really, it might, it, it might take you a few lifetimes to understand all the details that I'm presenting. But the point is that you don't have to. You can get to the place that I'm, you get the place I'm talking about. I'm describing every pebble in the road, but you can walk the road without meeting every pebble personally. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. So maybe you would just clarify, people unify their minds on all sorts of things, and sometimes they get some equanimity, and sometimes they'll get some mundane insights, I mean, whether it's kayaking, or I mean, it, whatever your hobby is, people can get bliss out of that from the unification, yeah. but they don't get insight generally, or at least not other than mundaneness. Yeah. And so is that... It's not totally exclusive of insight. And I would say that there's been people kayaking who have had profound experiences that go beyond kayaking. Mm -hmm. People are gardening and become totally... The mind becomes totally unified in the process of gardening. And so the gardening doesn't take up all of their conscious capacity. So they're contemplating the nature of life as they're digging the weeds or whatever, they'll have some profound insights too. But what I think stands in the way of, uh, of powerful insight commonly happening in association with uh, rewarding activities is, on the one hand, you, there's a kind of busyness there that gets in the way. You know, uh, kayaking on a whitewater river doesn't really leave any mental capacity over to contemplate anything else. Mm -hmm. And it also forces you to um, not to question the way you see things. You totally accept that, you know, that rock, that whirlpool, that so and so, you know, that is what it is. There's no room for, for uh, second-guessing anything. The third thing is you're coming from a place where it's being reinforced that if I do this, it makes me happy. So it's actually reinforcing one of the most root uh, delusions. So it makes it harder for insight to come. But it's not impossible. It's just less. There's not as much likelihood. When you're meditating, you unify the mind, and your purpose, your purpose is the insight. That's really your purpose. And as the mind becomes unified, less and less energy and effort or anything else needs to go into the meditation. So more and more of everything becomes the exploration, the investigation. And that's what makes insight really likely to happen. Given that explanation, what is our training outside of meditation in terms of moment to moment? I mean, if we're all trying to cultivate a unified mind in meditation, well, we want the mind to become more unified the rest of the time as well. Right. And this makes this makes every experience you have outside of meditation a potential inside experience as well. And also, we need to have a certain amount of mundane insight before we're capable of having these super-mundane insights. I have a specific question, and that's... If I understood 
you know, could process a little better, I, I might have a clue as to how to incline my mind, you know, as I'm driving down the road or, you know, because I obviously can't unify it on the breath, mm -hmm. but, you know, maybe I can put 10% there or 90% on the road. Or, I'm just thinking of, I don't quite understand the process enough to know how to set up a training that would facilitate yeah. the meditation. Well, that's a really good example when you're driving. What do you? What does your mind usually do while you drive? Well, it usually thinks if I'm not yeah. watching it. Right. What does it think about? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> it thinks a lot of same old crappy thoughts that it thinks all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they're not crappy. Sometimes you know, that's true, but it, it does add an awful lot, though. It, 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 it thinks it thinks the same old thoughts. It remembers things. You're not in the present. You're in the past. You're in the future, or you're in a realm of imagination. Sometimes you're in a realm of abstraction. Sometimes you sometimes your thoughts in urban driving can be very very productive. You can solve problems, figure things out, um, write sonnets. Um, well, create sonnets in your mind that you write down later on. <laughs> um, but the way that you can, the way, the way what you want to do is you want to learn to be truly present. When you're driving a car, it only takes so much of your mind to uh, to operate the vehicle and to keep track of the essential details of what's happening around you. But what you can do when you're driving is to try to be more fully aware of everything that's happening around you and more fully aware of what's happening inside you. So even if you're remembering something, if you know that you're remembering something, that can only come about through a greater degree of unification of the mind. Because otherwise, the part of your mind that wants to project the memories and consciousness it wants to hog all the airtime. It wants there to be nothing in consciousness except this situation that I'm rehashing. So the mind has to become unified in enough that that part of your mind is willing to share the airtime with the other parts of the mind that are watching the overall process and watching the mental reactions that happen to the different aspects of the memory. And even becoming aware, even allowing other parts of the mind to... Um, interject things that, that uh, go in different directions than what that part of the mind is trying to dominate consciousness. So, so you're basically saying make it more intentional. Whatever. Yes, that would be another way to put it, more intentional, because um, this aspect of things that we didn't talk much about yet, but every time something is projected into consciousness, <clears throat> we call that a moment of consciousness. Each moment of consciousness is a... A, uh, it's, it's a picture is a little glob of information that one particular mind is projecting into consciousness for the others to see. And that glob of information, uh, it, it includes a number of different factors. It's not just the information. It also includes feeling and it also includes intention. Actually, it concludes, you know, in the Abhidharma they describe up to 57 different factors that can be present or absent in each moment of consciousness. But in addition to the information, two others that are always there is feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and intention. And so every moment of every time some mind projects something into consciousness, it's accompanied by an intention. Even if the intention is just that the next moment of consciousness is also going to come from the same mind with the same content, or related content. It always has an intention. Intentionality develops as more and more different minds support a given intention. If you start having a pleasant thought and you become totally preoccupied in that pleasant thought, it is precisely because uh, there is a unification of part of the mind around that intention. Right? So, and uh, um, this, this is how we get obsessed with all kinds of different things, good and bad. 
Unification of mind is a natural process, but it's a process that is usually limited. One mind presents something to consciousness, there's a, there's a group of other minds that says, wow, yeah, this feels good to think about this, and so they support that, and so it gets thought about. The other parts of the mind say, ah, it's boring, yeah, I'm not interested, and they go away. So it's, it's, a limited, it's a limited consensus, it's a limited unification, but the unification itself is a very natural process. What we're trying to do is we're trying to expand that. We're trying to say, hey, let's include more in this. When you include more in this, to really include more, it can't be just, you guys forget what you're interested in and just go with what I want to do. It's just like in human interaction. You can get small groups operating on that basis. I'm the leader. This is what I think we should do. And everybody says, okay, boss, we'll do what you want. But it doesn't, doesn't go very far. To expand it, it has to... It has to expand to include a variety of interests and desires and needs. And this is the direction that uh, th this is the direction that you have to go to bring about a broader unification. Put it in other words, when instead of your mind being focused on one particular train that enough of your mind wants to do to make it happen that the rest of the mind doesn't care about. And then when that gets old, switching to a different similar one. And when that gets old, switching to a different similar one. Instead of that happening, if it becomes, if consciousness becomes used as the basis for a much broader communication, then these temporary unifications of mind become a much more profound unification of mind in terms of, uh, remember I said the problem is all these different minds have different versions of reality and different ideas of how to achieve goals, right? With enough communication, they start to coalesce in a, in a deeper sense. So, so that there's a, a greater commonality of shared purpose and direction. This is what the whole Dharma is trying to bring you to, to a place where uh, you practice precepts, you practice the perfections, you do meditation, you study the Dharma, you try to live in a particular way. You're trying to bring all of the different parts of you to a shared set of values and a shared set of goals. And what this does is eliminates internal conflict. And what you end up with is you become, you have a mind that's much, much more powerful, much more potent, much more capable because of this unification, because and it's based on shared values and shared purposes and shared understanding, shared interpretation. This is what makes insight important. Um, because insight is insight into universal truth. And if it's an insight into something that's universally true, it means that all the different minds that make you up are capable of sharing that understanding. A, an interpretation of reality that is less universal is only going to be acceptable to a small subset of minds. Insight, true insight, that's the value of it. It penetrates to a much broader spectrum of the mental processes that make you up. And so they become more profoundly unified. The different parts of you are now seeing things more in the same way. They still have their different functions. They still have their different purposes but they fulfill those purposes far more harmoniously because they're based on a, a, a shared perception of the nature of reality that's more workable. So, uh, okay. so when you're driving a car, by being completely present, what's really happening right now? What, what am I doing? And just... I mean, at first, it seems like you exhaust the possibilities of what's really happening right now I'm driving this car. It's like, yeah, okay, is this, this, yeah, is that's it, okay. This is boring, I better think about something. Um, but if you stick with it, you find, oh, wait a minute, there's a lot going on here. A lot more than I ever realized going on here. And even the part of your mind that says, okay, we've seen it all, but let's think a nice thought instead, it's good and boring. Okay, that now becomes a part, part of what you observe. Okay, part of me thinks this is boring and should think about something else. Uh, what does it want to think about? Ah, oh, it wants to think about that. Oh, yeah, okay. Right. 
But I don't have to get sucked into that. I'm still here driving this car. And uh, the whole world unfolding in front of me. And uh, that matter, there's more than that unfolding inside me. What else is going to come up next? Well, as a matter of fact, there's all kinds of things that have been coming up that you start to notice them. Driving a car becomes an incredibly rich experience. Um, that extends eventually to a lot of other activities. As the mind becomes more, if the mind, take the mind of a Buddha. That's a okay. very, <laughs> totally yes. Okay, you don't have one? Please do, help yourself. <laughs> I think there's enough for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very, a, a, a very unified mind, which means it's a, a very wise mind. It's a very blissful mind. Um, it's, a, it's an extremely aware mind. And um, that's, that's, where, that's where we want to get to, right? I still, the mind of a Buddha has just as many different parts to it as your mind does. But a lot of the friction has, well, all the friction has disappeared. The only friction remaining in the mind of a Buddha is that two different parts of the mind have functions that are creating attention. But the rest of the mind of the Buddha is capable of resolving that tension. What are the two different parts? What's that? You said the mind of a Buddha has mind of a Buddha has two different parts that are creating attention. Yeah, it's out of the many, it has just as many different parts as your mind does. Mm -hmm. But when two different parts are in attention with each other, mm -hmm. right? So um, you're you're a hungry Buddha. You've been on the road for a couple of days, and somebody gives you a tuna sandwich, and you're really enjoying it. Uh, and it's good for you, uh, it's going to make you feel a lot better, and your meditation is going to be a lot better as a result, or whatever, you know. And somebody else comes along, and uh, they didn't get there in time, and all the tuna sandwiches are gone. So, what do you do then? That's attention. The, the Buddha will resolve it in a way that uh, is, is leaves the Buddha feeling just as blissful as before. So... I promised I wouldn't get into any new stuff. <laughs> but I can entertain all the questions you ask about what we've already talked about. Or we can all go home. I'll be back uh, two weeks from tonight. And keep thinking about these things and ask more questions. Um, if I forget, remind me. I'd, what I do want to talk about is... Uh, next time, is uh, of the three characteristics we've been talking about, no self, and we use the launching pad for that as the five aggregates which let us into mind and consciousness. I want to talk about the uh, impermanence and emptiness aspect, in particular the emptiness, and I've already given you the seed for emptiness. All these different parts of your mind, each has its own different understanding of things, right? 